Uh, we have been in a series traveling through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there, or you can follow along with me on the screen here just a little bit. We've got a big theological question that we're going to ask today, and the Word of God's going to answer it for us. And our question is not your typical Easter sermon question, but hey, it was the next text in the series, so I rolled with it. Um, our question today is, can a person send their way out of a relationship with Jesus Christ? And we're going to hear the Word of God answer that question today. Um, our text comes from Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, our, and, but we're going to go back a couple of verses before that because we need to do a little lead in. So we're going to read from Romans chapter 7 beginning at verse 21, and as is our custom, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. We'll start Romans chapter 7 at verse 21 through chapter 8 and verse 1. Here we go. Here. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. Well, that verse is considered by many uh, throughout church Christendom to be one of the uh, most poignant statements in all of Scripture. It provides a lot of hope that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It provides a lot of encouragement. Um, and so let's dive into it together. We're going to start Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now the word condemnation in the Greek is the word katakrima. And katakrima is when a judge would bang his gavel and say condemned. It's when he would say katakrima. And basically he's saying that the person who's the defendant who's on trial here is deserving of punishment, that they are guilty. Um, but it's more than that. When katakrima is translated into Latin, it's the word damnationas. Damnationas is where we get our English term damnation. And so Paul has more in view of than just saying that you're guilty. It's that you're guilty and that you, the penalty for that guilt is that you'll spend eternity in hell, that you'll be damned to hell. Um, so that's what Paul has in view. And when he says that there is no condemnation, he's saying that there will be no eternity in hell. You follow the meaning? He's saying that there is no, no possibility that you are going to end up in hell because you're not condemned. He says there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for this reason, throughout church history, again, this has been an extremely popular, extremely encouraging verse for the church to hear. That if you are in Christ, that if you've asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, you've invited Him into your life, you've repented of your sins, that you are now heading for an eternity in heaven. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, friends, there is, uh, this cannot be said of you. It cannot be said of you that there is no condemnation for you, that there is no eternity uh, in heaven for you. Uh, because the only way for that to happen is for you to be in Christ. You say, well, I'd like to go to heaven. That's a good thing. So how do I get to be in Christ? Well, Paul tells us a little bit later in Romans chapter 10, he says in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is saved from an eternity in hell that you'll be saved from eternal damnation. But you have to put your faith 
and your trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross as your means for getting to heaven. Uh, before you end this day, friends, my inv invitation to you is to bow your head, to close your eyes, and to pray and invite Jesus into your life. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. There could be no more important decision for you to make, something for you to think about. Let's go back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. You say, Gordon, that is good news. I mean, knowing that I'm in Christ and that I'm not condemned, that I don't have to worry about an eternity apart from God, that's wonderful. But you know what? It gets even better. You'll notice there in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 the word, therefore. Um, and we have noted before when we've been reading through these texts that when we run across the word therefore, we want to know what it is. There you go. Man, I'm so glad. that I'm, I was hoping I would get that kind of a response. So uh, it's a literary device that Paul uses. It's a way for him to build one thought upon another thought. He establishes one concept here, and then he's going to talk about a new subject over here, but that it builds upon the last thing that he was talking about. And he uses this, this literary device, therefore, a whole lot of times. The question is, what is Paul referring to when he says that he was, uh, what is he thereforing? That's not a real word in the English language, but I came up with it anyway. So what is Paul thereforing? What is he referring back to? Uh, is it A, that, that he's referring to something he had just got done talking about? Or is it B, that Paul is talking about something that he referred to several chapters before? Um, and so, uh, some theologians have said, well, it's B. Paul is thereforeing uh, something he had said way back in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, Paul establishes the phrase in Christ. And he talks about how if we're in Christ, then we'll spend an eternity with him in heaven. But that if we're in Adam, that we're still subject to the curse. And so he juxtaposes these two phrases, in Christ and in Adam. And so some have said that that's what he's thereforeing. He's reporting back to that. Um, some other folks have said, well, no, you've got to go even further back than Romans chapter 5. You've got to go to Romans chapter 3, and they give their rationale for that. Um, I say that it is not A, but rather that, or not B, but rather that it is A, that Paul is referring to something that he has just been talking about. Paul has, this is the consistent pattern of Paul's use of the word therefore. He's always referring to, in every other occasion, I don't know why the things would change here, but in every other occasion he's thereforeing what he had just been talking about. And so the reason why this is so important is because if we leapfrog past what Paul had just been talking about, then potentially we miss the meaning of Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. So I'm going to operate under the principle that Paul is thereforeing something that he has just been talking about. You say, Gordon, I've never heard you get so excited over a conjunction before. <laughs> yes, that is true. But again, there's really important, really significant to how we understand this passage. So let's take a look at what Paul has just been talking about. Romans chapter 7, verse 21. He writes, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 22. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being. But I see in my members another law or a force within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What is Paul talking about here? Paul is talking about a sinful nature. He's talking about this force, this instinct that lives on the inside of him, that compels him, that pushes him, that shoves him to do things that are in the opposite direction of God's expectations for his life. It is a compulsion to disobey God, to rebel against God, and the Bible calls this our sinful nature. For example, we do not have to teach people to lie. Lying comes very natural to the human race. Uh, the idea of covering our tracks and concealing and hiding, all these sorts of things, we're very good at that. Those are instincts that we have. We don't have to teach, for example, two-year-olds to covet. Two-year-olds naturally want everything that every other two-year-old has. 
Correct? For those of you that have young kids or you work with young kids, you know that this to be true. That they always want what their sister has or what their brother has, and there's this constant battle going on of their covetousness. And it's natural to them. It's instinctual to them. Rather, in school, what do teachers have to do? They, and modern moms and dads have to do? They have to teach their kids to share, right? Because that does not come natural. The whole segment here at the end of Romans chapter 7 is Paul talking about his own ongoing struggle with sin in his life. He says back in verse 18, middle of the verse, he says, I have the desire to do what is right. That is, I want to, like in my heart, in my life, in with every fiber of my being. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul talking here. He wants to live a holy life. He wants to live at the high bar of God's expectations for his life. That's what he desires, he says there in verse 18, verse 19. But what I find is the evil that I don't want to do. Notice that he calls it evil. He's not talking about just some, I wanted what my neighbors, you know, had a new lawnmower and I really wanted that here. This is, he says, he calls it evil. He says, the evil that I don't want to do is what I find myself doing. And the reason for this is, back up to verse 23, is because in my members, that is inside of me, there is another law waging war against the law of my mind where my good intentions are. And this force that's on the inside of me, the sinful nature, is going to town on my good intentions. And it's winning against my own raw determination, my willpower. So Paul is kind of frustrated. Paul is feeling pretty lousy about himself. He's, he wishes he could live a certain way, and he's finding himself unable to meet those expectations, unable to live the way he wants to live. And so he says in verse 24, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, from this sinful nature? And so he says, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, you'll notice back in verse 24 that he says the word deliver. And Paul has two kinds of deliverances in mind. And when we get to Romans chapter 8, we discover this quite clearly. In Romans chapter 1, chapter 8 and verse 1, he's talking about justification there. He's talking about this condemnation issue, the penalty of sin. And that's one deliverance that Jesus is going to bring him, the deliverance from the penalty of sin, that he will not have to spend eternity in heaven. He will not have to experience damnation. He will not have to experience condemnation, correct? So that's one kind of deliverance that he has in mind. But the second kind of deliverance that he has in mind, and this is what we'll get to in the coming weeks, is this idea that God wants to deliver us also from the power of that sinful nature that dwells on the inside of us. That God wants to help us live a new life uh, closer and closer to him. Let me show you this kind of on a timeline here so you can kind of understand these concepts. Uh, this is a timeline of the Apostle Paul's life, very rudimentary, I know. Uh, you can see that he's born there at one end, and then he's born into the world. And then a little bit later down the road, I don't know if it's, I don't know exactly how old the Apostle Paul was. Somebody's done a study on this. There's probably been some doctoral dissertations. Somebody knew about how old Paul was when he um, had his Damascus Road experience. But the Apostle Paul, probably in his 30s, was on his way to, the, to Damascus from Jerusalem on the Damascus Road. And he sees this blinding light from heaven, and he realizes it's Jesus that's talking to him. And that's the moment of Paul's conversion. Paul puts his faith and his trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins. And that was when we would say Paul was justified. He was made not guilty. He was made just. He was made righteous in the sight of a holy God. And that was a fixed point, right, on Paul's timeline. You can see that there. Um, and so uh, I can take you to the spot 
where that happened for me. 901 Northeast 10th Street, Milford, Delaware, 19963. I can walk inside of the house. I can show you the exact room. I can show you the ex exact spot on the floor in that room where I knelt down on my knees next with my dad at my bedside at the age of eight. He led me in a prayer to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And friends, when I stood up from that spot, on my timeline was a mark that said, Gordon is justified. And so my point is, again, justification, conversion, the moment in which we go from being a sinner condemned to being a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus, it happens in a moment. Justification does not happen gradually. It happens in an instant. It happens in a moment. So whether you can remember whether or not that happened for you, like when that happened for you, you are a believer in Jesus Christ, are you not? You have trusted in him for the forgiveness of the, your sins, have you not? And so, friends, somewhere, whether you can remember that exact moment or not, somewhere on your timeline, though, that moment occurred when you went from being transferred as a sinner who was condemned to being a sinner who was saved by the blood of Jesus. Um, now, there's another deliverance that Paul has in mind, and he was going to reveal that again um, in Romans chapter 8, and we'll get to that in the coming weeks. I hope you'll come back in the coming weeks to learn about uh, this process that God wants to take us through called sanctification, where Paul is sanctified, where he's made more and more in the image of God, where God addresses the outward behavior of Paul, and then where God addresses the stuff that's going on the inside of him. He's transforming Paul to become more like Christ, more like love and joy and peace patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And so we'll talk about that when we get into Romans chapter 8. But again, that's this concept of being sanctified. It's a mature, maturity is a process, right? Maturity is a process. It doesn't happen in an instant like justification. Maturity is a process that leads you toward becoming more like Christ. All right, back to verse 25. Paul says, who is going to deliver me from all this? Well, thanks be to God through Jesus our Lord. That is who is going to deliver me. And that deliverance is going to come in two stages. The first is him being justified. That's an instantaneous, a moment when the penalty of Paul's sins have been uh, negated. They've been, Jesus took that penalty on himself. Paul won't have to experience that penalty in his own self. Um, and the second kind of deliverance is this deliverance from his sinful nature, from the person that he used to be that he doesn't want to be anymore. He wants to live more like Jesus. Now, the last thing that Paul does before we get to chapter 8 is Paul offers up a summary statement. You'll see in the middle of verse 25 there, it begins with these words, so then. He's been talking for 10 verses, 15 verses on this topic of sinful nature. And he says, so then. Sounds like a summary statement's coming, right? 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 Okay. Just making sure. I know it's Easter. You're thinking about Easter egg hunts and stuff. So he says, so then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Again, this is nothing more than a restatement, a recap of all that Paul has been talking about over the last 10 or so verses. He wants to do the right thing in his head, he says there in those verses. He says, but in my flesh, in reality, I'm just not there yet. Therefore. What a wonderful word. Therefore. One thought building upon another. So whatever it is that Paul's about to say is directly connected to what Paul just said. And he just said that he has a sin problem that he personally is struggling with. Ongoing sin in his life. Therefore, praise God, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is no damnation even for believers who are struggling 
with ongoing sin in their life. That's what the Apostle Paul in the Word of God just said. Not only is that good preaching, friends, but that is good news. All right, well, that's our text for today, and so that means it's time for us to ask the question that we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? Let's see if we can answer that. You know, I don't know about you, but I have gone through times in my life when I have wondered, God, did I just blow it so bad that now we're done? You ever had one of those moments where I'm saying, God, you know what? Did I just max out on my quota? Did I just hit that mark that you're like, okay, no more, We're, we're, we're done here? And I've had times in my life like that where I thought, maybe God, maybe because of my stupidity, my foolishness, God's saying we're done here. And my prayers during those seasons are always in something like this, God, forgive me of all of my sins. And I'm praying that prayer in part because, yeah, I, I'm sorry about my sin, and, and I'm confessing that to God, and I'm wanting him to hear my sorrowfulness. But there's also something in my mind where I'm praying that prayer because I want to make sure that if somebody took an eraser to my mark, that I've reestablished that mark on my timeline. I'm concerned that maybe I've fallen out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. You ever been there? And so again, a lot of my prayers are, God, forgive me. And then along comes Paul the sinner that he admittedly was, who said he was doing not just some little stuff, but the evil that he hated. And he says, and he declares, there is therefore now, even now, not even now, no condemnation, nothing, for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, the word that's translated no in the English doesn't quite do justice to um, the Greek. The Greek word that's translated no is the word udes, and udes literally means nothing. It means nobody. It means a quantity of none. And so Paul is saying there is a quantity of no condemnation, none, available for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can you or I sin our way out of a relationship with Jesus Christ? The Word of God just said that is an impossibility. You say, Gordon, I got a question for you. What about license to sin? I mean, it sounds like you're saying that, I mean, if somebody could just sin and then they can just, God's going to forgive them and that, that, they're all, everything's going to be fine. Is that what you're saying? Friends, Paul dealt with this back in Romans chapter 6. He addressed that exact question. If God forgives us, then why not sin? If God forgives us, then why not just do whatever I want to do? Why not open the floodgates and have all the fun we want to have? And Paul reminds us that just because God loves us, just because God forgives us, does not mean that God nullifies the consequences of our actions. Paul reports in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 that the wages of sin is death. He said, if you want death and destruction and sorrow and suffering to be heaped upon your life and the lives of people who love you, then that's what you'll get when you sin. If you want to hurt the heart of God, that's what you'll get 
when you sin. Paul reminds us that just because God forgives doesn't mean that folly has no consequences. You know, the reason that I'm preaching this sermon today, well, first of all, because it was the next text in my (laughs) series. I was glad it landed on Easter, wonderful subject matter for us to consider. But I also was very aware, and looking back at my own life, reflecting back at my own life over the course of this past week of study and past couple weeks, and thinking about some of our our church family, um, some of us were raised in churches where we had a very different view of God than what is presented in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. The view of God that perhaps some of us are more familiar with is a God like Zeus, who's seated up in his heavenly throne in the clouds, the God of thunder, and he's just waiting, waiting for Gordon to blow it. So he can send down his lightning bolts and hit me and strike me and zap me and cause my life to be all kinds of terribleness. And for some of us, that's our view of God. And so our relationship with God has been one fraught with fear and with intimidation. Where God is this cold, harsh, distant God, a cruel master, not the God who claims you even when you mess up. Friends, what is on the pages of Scripture today is a God who is tender and compassionate, and I'm so grateful for this, long-suffering. You know, Jesus did not teach us to pray our judge. He didn't teach us to begin our prayers our master or our king. He taught us to begin our prayers our father. A tender and compassionate term. Some of us have been walking around for years, braced for the moment when God would say, that's it, we're done here. You're out. You're out of the family. We've just been waiting for the moment when God would do that. Some of us have been praying every day, God, forgive me of my sins, partially because we're sorry for our sins, and friends, we do need to confess those, and that's a good thing, but also because we're concerned, maybe, just maybe, our mark on the timeline is gone. Friends, that, is, that kind of Christianity results in religious schizophrenia. It is not healthy. And it presents a false view of who God is and who he reveals himself to be. It was robbing you of a re- loving relationship with your heavenly Father. You know, growing up in my household, I, uh, my mom and dad, uh, they had a rule. We did not bring C's home on our report cards. Uh, I might get one, I might have a bad day on a quiz or something like that, but when it came to report card time, there needed to be A's and B's. And so my mom and dad, they're both public educators. My dad was an elementary school principal for most of his career. My mom was a third grade teacher for most of her career, separate schools. And, uh, <laughs> and, and that was a good thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, For whatever reason, they just insisted that my brother and I did not bring home C's on our report card. Well, when I I hit second grade, it was time for report cards to come out, and I got my report card, uh, and I saw it, and there was a big old C in handwriting, of all things, right? (laughs) So, uh, but anyhow, I got a C in handwriting, and I knew I was in trouble. Um, And some of you have met my dad. He's—he was—I was little— he was six foot four, pretty intimidating looking guy. 
And uh, I was just a little Mr. Eight-year-old, or two-year-old, seven-year-old, second grade, two, whatever it is. I was, I was little. And, um, and I'm still scared, right? <laughs> and I remember it was a very quiet ride home on the bus because I was just aware that, you know, there was some, some stuff coming when I got home. And uh, when I got home, my brother noticed that I was not um, myself, and he started to inquire to find out why I was so quiet, not because he wanted to comfort me, but because he wanted to exploit this opportunity to um, give me a hard time and amuse himself for the afternoon. And so that's what I got from him. Most of the afternoon was, oh, you can't wait till dad gets home. Oh, you're in big time trouble. You better put on a couple pairs of extra underwear. And I did. I did. I had at least three or four on. Well, my mom got home later on that day, and she said, uh, you need to go wait in your room till your father gets home. And so I went to my room. I waited in my room for what felt like an eternity. And finally, I see my dad's head come through the door. And uh, he sat down on my bedside, and he bent me over his knee, and he proceeded to teach me not to bring home C's on my report card. And then my dad did something extraordinary. My dad grabbed me up in his arms, and he held me tight, and he hugged me, and he told me that he loved me. Friends, God does not whisk away our consequences of our behavior and our actions. He lets those things happen. He's a good father. He knows that sometimes we need to learn a lesson and that that's the way we do it. And then God, our Father, does something extraordinary. He wraps us up in his arms and he says to us, son, daughter, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no damnation, no penalty, eternal penalty for your sins under heaven. Some of us need to take some personal inventory and realize that we are still trying to earn our salvation. Friends, we didn't earn it at the beginning. And we don't maintain it by being good either. It is all God's grace. Rather, we need to live in the freedom of the love of our Father, who says, even when you mess up, even when you blow it big time, you are still mine. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of comfort today. You know right where we live. You know our frailties. You know our tendencies. You know all of our failures. And Lord, Romans 5, 8 said it so well. While we were yet sinners, Lord, you knew how bad we were. You knew what you were getting into. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, as we gather now to remember Jesus, your broken body and your shed blood, we are reminded, especially this season, of your great love. God, some of us need to be wrapped up in your arms and held tightly. Some of us have been rebellious for a while. And we've wondered, Lord, in my wondering, 
in my sin? Am I out of the family? And Lord, you are here to say, son, daughter, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Speak to us, minister to us this morning, Holy Spirit, we pray. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. The communion elements are there in the seat in front of you. We invite you to share in a time of remembering Christ's suffering, his death, his love for us. And then we'll close for, with a time of worship.